And my expectation, I'm kind of telling you this now so that you can kind of, in the next half an hour, kind of get ready in your heart and your spirit, is that every one of us will be prayed for by the team. And what we're going to pray for is more of the Holy Spirit. Now, you may have... I'm assuming here, perhaps I shouldn't assume, Rob's a great evangelist and probably would tell me off for assuming, but I'm kind of assuming that you know Jesus and love Jesus. Otherwise, I I think it's probably extraordinary that you're here uh, on a Saturday afternoon. But if you don't know Jesus and love Jesus, we'd love to pray for you to introduce you to Jesus. But I'm kind of assuming that pursuing his presence conference probably we we love Jesus. And, uh, you know, that was a work of the Spirit. You couldn't come to Jesus unless the Spirit of God drew you to Jesus. Um, So a work of the Spirit has already been done in your life, but actually in the Bible we see many instances of the early followers of Jesus who, yes, knew Jesus, yes, were drawn to Jesus by the Spirit, but yet were dramatically filled, empowered with the Holy Spirit. And whether it's your very first time of having somebody pray for you to receive the Holy Spirit, or whether, like me, you've received the Spirit thousands and thousands and thousands of times, actually, the Bible says this, don't get drunk on wine. And some of us good evangelical Christians would like to put a big full stop there. Don't get drunk, don't get drunk on wine. But keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be being filled. Keep on being filled. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is not a one-off activity. It's a constant, refreshing, and empowering that comes from the Holy Spirit. A little bit like, I don't know if any of us here have, I'm sure you all have, you know, because you're so far ahead of us in terms of technology. You probably all have electric cars here, you know. I'm sure none of you have dirty diesels or, you know, poor petrols. You have, uh, you know, energetic electric cars or whatever. But whether you have electric cars petrol engine cars or diesel engine cars, yesterday's fuel or last year's fuel runs out. And we need to put fresh fuel in the car for the journey so that the car is fit for purpose. And the fuel for living the Christian life is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God coming on us to empower us. And as Graham brilliantly, I mean, Graham, he kept saying, I think that's, that's from my talk. That, I'm going to say that this afternoon. That's from my talk. That's from my talk. He was so good this morning. Um, I kept thinking, and he said it probably better than I would, but one of the things Graham said, which I would like to say now again, <laughs> is do you notice the difference between the disciples before they received the Holy Spirit and after they received the Holy Spirit? I mean, the difference is extraordinary. The difference is a frightened, timid bunch of Christ followers who've seen Jesus alive, seen him die, been raised to life, ascended to heaven, and yet are nervous, hiding away in an upper room. Peter, on the eve of Jesus' death, even betraying him three times to a little servant girl. This is great big bold Peter, denying Jesus three times. When the Spirit comes on them, power, authority, evangelism, mission... They're out there on the streets. They don't care what they say. And even a couple of chapters later, they're called up in front of the highest authority in their land and they're told, never again must you speak in this name. And they say to them, well, you judge. Should we obey you or God? It's like, oh, right, okay, this is pretty bold now. What changed? Simply the filling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. My own story was that I was saved at eight years old. I'm a passionate believer, by the way, in children's 
work and work amongst children. It's interesting, I heard a statistic this week that somewhere between 80 and 90% of people who are currently Christ followers became Christ followers when they were under 18. I mean, how many of us became Christ followers when we were under 18? You know, kind of most of us in this room by the look of our hands. Therefore, we should pray for our children. We should, one of the passions we had of putting on Devoted was not to have a Christian conference. I'm not that impressed with Christian conferences, to be honest. Not, I don't live for Christian conferences. But one of the passions that we had for putting this on as a team was that we might have an event, a moment, a point in which we can introduce our children to Jesus, see them filled with the Holy Spirit and inspired to give their whole lives to him on mission. That was the reason that we do things like... That's the reason some of us crazily camp uh, under canvas or in a metal box for a few days in in the beautiful English weather, which, you know, at least in Sweden you have great summers. Just, I'll leave that hanging there. Last, (laughs) Last year was fabulous weather, but it hasn't always been fabulous weather. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Well, we do it. One of the reasons is soon might see our children filled with the Holy or saved, filled with the Holy Spirit. So I was saved at the age of eight in a village event, not unlike devoted, but on a much smaller scale, a few hundred people in a tent. And I became a Christian. I gave my life to Jesus at eight years old. But I've got to be honest with you, although I know, knew Jesus, I knew that I was going to an eternity with him, I knew that my sins had been forgiven, I, I, I loved him privately, I found publicly talking about him very difficult. And uh, at school, I really didn't want people to know that I was a Christian. Um, you know, we had those awkward conversations on a Monday, what did you do at the weekend? I would say everything apart from going to church. <laughs> And you know what it's like, I don't know if it's like this in Sweden, uh, certainly it was when I was growing up, um, we lived in quite a rural village communities and we were quite spread out and quite often parents would encourage other kids to go home, like, oh, bring your friend home for the weekend. So, you know, I, I went from one of my mates for a weekend and it was great, his dad drove racing cars uh, for a living and they had a swimming pool, I didn't know anyone who had a swimming pool, but they had a swimming pool and it's like, and then the awful day comes when my parents say, oh, why don't you invite Kevin, that's what his name, why don't you invite Kevin, I go, oh, no. Kevin coming to our house, it wasn't very impressive. We didn't have, my dad drove an old wreck and we didn't have a swimming pool. And then I said yes to it. And then suddenly the dawning reality is what do we do on Sunday? We go to this dreadful, I've got to be careful what I say here, (laughs) traditional hymn prayer sandwich church, which was just death. And I said to mum and dad, presumably this week I don't have to go to church because Kevin's with me. Get out of jail free card. (laughs) And they go, oh no, you have to bring Kevin to church. That's what we do as a family. I remember dying, thinking, oh no, he's going to come into this death situation. And it was, it was like death, and we got through it, but it was death. Not literally death, you understand? I mean, no, nobody actually died in the service. I mean, we had, I think we had, apart from our family, we had five old ladies. This is, this is true now, this is not a preacher's exaggeration. In our church, apart from our family, we had five old ladies and a dog. Literally, there was a dog that came along to church. And, uh, you know, we won't go into dogs' habits, but we used to put bets on when the dog would do certain things uh, in the meeting and various wafts would come over. Anyway, we, we, we won't go there. We won't go there. Anyway, at the, so at age of eight, I was a Christian, but not very passionate about Jesus publicly, certainly not very missional or evangelistic. At the age of 16, I came across a church just like yours, just like God first. 
that loved Jesus, that was filled with his Holy Spirit, that understood biblically that it was not good enough just to become a Christian, as it were, to have the new car, but the new car needed the new fuel, it needed the electricity, the diesel, the petrol, whatever, to propel it. And I understood that every Christian's right and responsibility was to be filled, empowered with the Holy Spirit. And I can remember at 16 years old, nobody told me this stuff. I read it in the Bible, but thought that was just the Bible type days. I thought it was just long ago. Didn't realize you could have it today. And I can remember getting baptized in water. And for me, there was a massive link between being baptized in water as an obedience to Jesus. Before that, I'd only been kind of christened and, you know, kind of. Uh, but as a baby, I was making no decision. As a 16 year old, I was making a public decision to follow Jesus. And I can remember coming out of the water of baptism. And in those days, the elders would all gather around you and pray and lay hands. I can remember being filled in Powered by the Holy Spirit. It was like he oozed upon me. It's like he, there was this liquid power coming down upon me. And I felt this love and this acceptance and this worship. And the amazing thing was, I went, this was on a Sunday, not surprisingly, I went to school on the Monday and told all my friends without even thinking about it and started to evangelize and started to see friends become Christians, started then to invite friends to church. What changed? It was the empowering of the Holy Spirit as a 16-year-old lad. Now, I believe in churches filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit, and I believe in individuals filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit. If we're going to reach secular Europe, and Europe is increasingly secular, isn't it? Increasingly liberal, increasingly post-Christian, increasingly actually like New Testament times. Now, what thrived in New Testament times? I'll tell you what, a spirit-filled, dynamic, signs and wonders gospel thrived in New Testament times. Against a backwash of liberalism, secularism, syncretism, following after other gods, which we do in our society, we just don't call them gods, we call them money, sex and power. But following after that, that dark backdrop, which you think religion wouldn't thrive in, which it doesn't actually, actually Christianity, the truth of a risen saviour who appears in a people in community, with signs and wonders and power and authentic living, actually it thrives like wildfire. We shouldn't fear the liberalism that we're in and the secular age we're in. We should rejoice. It's actually getting a little bit more like New Testament times. And if the world is getting a little bit more New Testament, like New Testament times, jolly well the church should get a little bit more like New Testament times. And we need a New Testament church full of power and authority and the Holy Spirit And I believe that's going to set Europe, Western Europe, ablaze again. And we're going to see churches planted all over these Scandinavian nations, right across Europe. Even now, as our nation's voting, whether to be in, out, or shake it all about, we really don't know who we are and what we are. I tell you what, we're committed to Europe. We're we're in Europe, and we want to serve you. and We want to see together something happen right across Europe. And it's going to be spirit-filled churches. Now... Jesus spoke a lot about the Holy Spirit, but the most important thing he said to the disciples was to wait in Jerusalem, even after he died for their sins, even after he'd ascended or risen and ascended on high, he said, wait for the power to come. And he said, when the power comes, when the Spirit comes, in Acts 1 verse 8, Graham referred to it this morning, you will be my witnesses. Jesus deliberately links witnessing power evangelism with the coming on of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes, he says, 
wait for it, when the, the dynamic, the dynamite of the Holy Spirit, when the dunamis of the Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, home base, Judea, the area, the county, the nation, the, the, the larger province that you're in, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the nation next door that we don't really like very much, but actually God's caused us to reach out to the nations next door and the ends of the earth. And that's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And I believe God wants to raise up across Scandinavia spirit-filled movements of churches that go from their nation to the secular nation of Europe and to the ends of the earth. And God wants you to play your part. If you look into your church history, in the past, Scandinavia sent out missionaries all over the world. It's played a massive part. Europe has played a massive part in evangelization of the world, right across Africa, the Americas. And God's going to do it again, and he's going to do it again through a Swedish church, through a Norwegian church, through a Danish church, through a Finnish church. He's going to do it again across secular Europe. How? If we become spirit-filled churches. Now, Jesus had already told the disciples exactly how to receive the Holy Spirit, did he? I thought it was just mystical. I thought it just came over you. I thought you just had to turn up to the right meeting at the right time. It's a bit like spiritual bingo. If he calls your number, you know, I've got the numbers right tonight. I'm the one who gets the spirit tonight. Have you been in meetings like that? You're hoping it's you, and suddenly it's some some burst at the back. Oh, they got the spirit tonight. That's a shame. Oh, they got it tonight. No, actually, Jesus is very clear. He tells the disciples exactly how to receive the Holy Spirit And John records it in John chapter 7, if you've got a Bible. And they didn't understand at the time. In fact, John himself writes at the end of this, when Jesus gives these instructions, at the end of it, John himself writes, by this Jesus meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive, Up to this time, the Spirit had not been given, this is John 7, and I'm reading from verse 38 and 39. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up till that point, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. But the amazing truth is this, Jesus has now been glorified. The glorification of Jesus, the theological term which we call glorification, is a theological term that encompasses really Jesus' passion, his last few uh, weeks and days of his life, the, the, the awful trial, the crucifixion, the burial, the descent, and then the glorious resurrection, and not just the resurrection, but the ascension into heaven, that is the glorification of Jesus, that whole process, that whole thing. Salvation, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. That's theological, theologians call that the glorification of Jesus. And if you'd asked Jesus at this point, and we'll come to the story in a moment, if you'd asked Jesus, yes, you've convinced me, I want to receive the Spirit. Jesus would have to say to you, no, wait, I haven't yet been glorified. Listen, guys, the good news is this. Jesus has been glorified, and there is absolutely no barrier at all to you receiving the Spirit. There's no barrier at all. Every single believer here can be, should be, and will be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
if, and there's an if, there's some conditions on this, because Jesus himself puts some conditions. He even starts his little speech here with an if. There are some conditions to this. We'll come on to it in a moment. So let's just read it. We'll set it in context in a moment. Let's just read it. This is John chapter 7, and I'm going to read down from 37 and even quote those verses I've quoted up to 39 inclusive. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If, 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 if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. John then comments, by this, Jesus meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up till that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So it's ever so important, as you know this as good Bible believers, as good those who've been taught really well, it's ever so important that we set the context, what's going on here. So it starts off, uh, by saying on the last and greatest day of the feast. Well, what feast are we talking about here? What's the context of this? Because the context is very important. It, things don't just happen in the Bible per chance. There is context, there is reason to why things are happening. And the context of this in John chapter 7 is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents or the Feast of Booths. Tabernacle, tent, booth. It's just the same word we're going to be all camping next year at Devoted. It could, we could have called it, rather than a Bible weekend or a festival, we could have called it a tabernacling event. We could have called it a booth event. We could have called it a, a, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Tabernacles. Because what would happen once a year, and it would only happen once a year, but it would happen every year, for a whole week, for seven days, the whole of Israel would go outside and instead of going to their garden or going to a showground, they'd go to their roofs, their flat roofs. Now, in Western Europe here, mostly we have nice pointy roofs because the water runs off much more easily. Actually, they had flat roofs because they used it as an entertaining space. They used it as a space. If you go to the Middle East now, it's just the same. They use it as a space to wash. Uh, They use it as a space to uh, do all sorts of housework activities. It's just another part of their home. But it was a flat roof. And what would happen for a whole week, the whole family would camp out on the roof and they would make a tent. It's a bit crazy. Kids loved it, by the way. Kids. I've not yet met a kid who doesn't absolutely love devoted, even if it's pouring with rain. In fact, the more rain, the more mud, the more mess, the more dirt, the more kids seem to love it, by the way. It's just us adults who go, oh no, it's raining, it's a bit, it's a bit muddy, I have to get my Wellington boots on, rather than my flip-flops, you know, it's yeah, difficult, first world problems. <laughs> kids loved it. And what they would do, they would go and get palm branches, because that was kind of, they didn't have canvases quite in the same way. I mean, they did, but they would be very expensive to buy. They went out and just got palm branches, and they would make themselves little makeshift tents. And the whole family, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? You've got a very nice house, again, a bit low devoted, but for a week you go and live in a tent. But they would do, it was a prophetic declaration. It was a prophetic statement. Why were they doing this? Why were they living in a tent on the roof for a whole week? Well, they were celebrating two things in particular. And it's all very irrelevant to what Jesus says. 
Firstly, they were celebrating that they were, used to be a nomadic people, that they used to be a people who were called, they wandered in the desert, they were called out of Egypt, if you remember, but they wandered in the desert for 40 years. They had no home because they were slaves in Egypt, but God had miraculously called them out of Egypt. He'd set them free from their slavery, and for 40 years they'd wandered in the desert Pitch tent, pitch tent, pitch tent. And it kind of reminded them of their history. They used to be nomadic, but through God's faithfulness and mercy, they'd inherited the land. They got into the land, and the land was God's gift to them. And they reminded themselves that we haven't earned this land. This wasn't our land, but God gave us this land, and therefore we live in this tent to remind ourselves how grateful we are that God's given us the land, that we can have houses, that we can grow crops, that we can be an agrarian society. God is good to us, and we celebrated by living a whole week in a tent. Secondly, and this is not very relevant in our society, but if you go to Africa, it's very relevant, they celebrated the fact that God provided their daily elements for living Not just daily bread, but daily water. In fact, water was probably the most essential commodity that they had. And unlike us, they didn't turn the tap on and get nice clean water. They had to pray for the rains. They had to be very aware of seasons and rain and collecting water. And in the desert, the clue is in the fact that it was desert... There wasn't a lot of water, and there were times in the desert, and they reminded themselves of this. They remembered this, particularly during the Feast of Tabernacles and Tents. They remembered that actually it was in the desert time, when they were parched, when their relatives, their their forefathers were absolutely thirsty, they were parched, they had no water to drink. They reminded themselves that it was God, through Moses, who provided water. God said to Moses, speak to the rock, as you do. You know, have a conversation with a rock. You've been wandering the desert a little bit too long when you start speaking to rocks. But God said, speak to the rock. And he did. And from the rock, which is Christ, by the way. The rock is a symbol of Christ always. We haven't got time to look at that. But we, he spoke to the rock. And from the rock came this beautiful flood of water and refreshing. They reminded themselves that all, not just the land was from God, but all, God's, all the provisions, all the water they received, everything was from God. And they thanked him. They also reminded themselves that they had a few crazy prophets. Now, we've been looking at prophecy this uh, day, this conference, and hopefully we've demystified some of it, made it not quite so crazy, but they had a few crazies in their past. And one of their crazy prophets, one of their prophets they didn't always quite understand, was a prophet called Ezekiel. And if you read the book of Ezekiel, it's still a little bit weird, and wheels, and wheels within wheels, and faces, and animals, and it's all a bit... There's only one other book in the Bible that's a bit weirder than Ezekiel. That's Revelation, which is wheels, and, you know, faces, and uh, animals, and angels, and weird stuff going on. You think, what is this? What is is going on here? Well, one of the things they reminded themselves about Ezekiel was Ezekiel had a particular prophetic picture for the nation, and that was this, that... Ezekiel saw a picture from the altar, he saw a flow of water, and that water started to trickle out of the altar, and it got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and Ezekiel said, first of all, it was like ankle deep, then it was knee deep, then it was thigh deep, then I could swim in it, and it said, and if you look at it, it flowed even into the Dead Sea, and made the Dead Sea alive. It was an amazing prophetic picture 
of God's calling on the nation and that the nation was one day going to bring fresh water. Not just literal water, but spiritual water, living water. God was going to bring living water to the whole world. That was Israel's calling, to bring the light to the Gentiles, to bring the water to a thirsty people. And what would happen during the Feast of Tabernacles, for six days, as many people that were, as were in Jerusalem would gather to the temple. Now, I want you to imagine. I want you to be great imaginaries. Use your imagination. I want you to imagine this is the temple. This vast stage here is the beautiful temple. And what would happen is this. You are Israel, and you are about a million people, pressed in, crowded in, and the high priest, and this is not recorded in the Bible, but this is recorded in rabbinic tradition, this, this would happen. Every day, the high priest would go through a little ritual in front of a million people at the Feast of Tabernacles to prophetically reenact the vision of Ezekiel. And this is what happened. He'd get a golden pitcher, just like my golden jug. I told you, you've got to use your imagination. He get his, it would be empty. It's not empty at the moment. He would then go to the temple steps. We have steps. And he would be at the top of the temple steps. And he would then go down the temple steps. You have to be up to go down. And then he would go to the... There was a pool at the bottom of the temple. It's still there today. They found it in archaeological digs called the Pool of Siloam. You may have heard of it, it's in the Bible. And he would draw up water and he would sing a series that called the Great Halal series of Psalms in the Bible. And one of them is this With joy I draw water from the well of salvation. And he would draw up water from the well of salvation. And then he would march up. That had to be fit. In front of a million people, he would march up to the top of the temple steps and down the Kidron Valley side of the temple, he would prophetically, and I'm not going to do this, guys, don't worry, (laughs) Alid, water and electricity don't mix. I'm not going to do it. He would pour out the water down into the Kidron Valley as a prophetic action to say, I'm just taking a bit of water from the well of salvation. It's just just, just a well. It's just the pool of Siloam. But prophetically, I'm reenacting Ezekiel, who saw that from the temple, Ezekiel saw from the temple, living water would flow out to the nations. And I'm prophetically pouring it out. Right? So he would do that once a day, every day, for six days. And then, on the seventh day, which some people called the greatest day of the feast. Does that ring true? On the seventh day, that some people would call the greatest day of the feast, the high priest, I always start from the wrong place, the high priest (laughs) would be up here with an empty jug. He would then go all the way down. I could have just gone down, but, you know, we're reacting it. He would draw water from the well of... With joy, I draw water from the well of salvation. He would draw his water from the well of salvation on the seventh and greatest day of the feast... He would go up to the top of the temple steps. 
And he would, unlike the other six days, on the greatest day of the feast, the seventh day, he would just pause. Because this was no longer to be a prophetic enactment. This was waiting in case God would do it today. Because God was going to do it. They really believed this. You've got to understand that. They really believed God was going to do it one day. One day, Messiah would come. One day, he really would pour out living water. One day, it really would happen. Why not today? That was their thinking. Why not today? So they wait. And you know those hushed moments of silence? I don't know what it's like here in Scandinavia, but there are hushed moments of silence when you don't even want, you don't even want your baby to breathe. <laughs> you, you just, nobody said, I'll give, you an, I'll give you a hushed moment of silence. Here we are. I'll see if this translates here. Does anyone here know any legal reason why this man and this woman should not be married? Did you say that? Do you have to say that? We have to say that in England. You have to, have, you have to say it publicly. Does anyone know of a legal reason? Some, you know, you, nobody says anything. You have to keep quiet. It was one of those moments of poignancy, of hush. Now, the Bible doesn't actually say so, but I'm kind of reading it back into the text. On the last and greatest day of the feast, a lone prophet stood up in a loud voice when everyone else was quiet and said this, Are you thinking about water right now? Duh, yeah. Well, I tell you this, you're looking in the wrong place. It's no longer about this temple. It's about this temple. And I tell you, not just water is going to be poured out, but if you come to me, because I really am the Messiah, I really am the fulfilment of all the Old Testament, if you come to me and drink from me, actually out of you is going to flow living water to the nations. Now, does the context help me to understand the passage? I think it does. So this is what Jesus said, and we're going to bring this in for landing now. Jesus said, if anyone's thirsty. See, it was ever so interesting today, I don't know who brought it, but we had all sorts of stuff about feasts and feeding, and who was it? Nina. Yeah. Isaiah 55. <laughs> I've got one right. <laughs> i got one right. I mean, not you. I mean, i got one right. I'm 55, yes, 55. You know, it talks about the feast. It talks about feeding and drinking. Revelation is all about the feast. It's all about come to the table. It's all prepared. It's all... And Jesus said, if you're thirsty. Now, there's conditions put on this. It's not, if you like. Oh, if you like. Oh, to belong to this kind of charismatic, happy, clappy, weird church. Don't I quite like the people? I just think they're a bit weird when they worship. <laughs> and you're especially weird. <laughs> but I quite like her. You know, I quite like them. They're nice people. If I've got to belong to them, I suppose I've got to be filled with the Spirit, because that's what everyone gets. All right, then. Fill me with the Spirit. Do you know what you'll get when we pray for you later? Nothing. Because Jesus said, if you're thirsty, are you, are you thirsty for him? D- does, David says, my, my whole soul thirsts and pants for God just like a deer in the desert. 
I'm panting for him. I'm thirsting for him. You know, we've called this conference pursuing his presence. There's something about running after God. There's something about saying, I want this from God. Not if you like. If you like, you'll get nothing. But if you're thirsty, if anyone's thirsty, so important, dear friends, that we are thirsty. It says in Revelation 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, whoever is thirsty... Let him come and take the free gift of the water of life. Jesus said this in Luke 11. Ask. You think, why do we have to ask? Because it's it's aligning our will with his. It's aligning our heart with his. It's saying, fill me, Lord. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. If you then, even though you're evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. It's the Holy Spirit who's given when we ask, when we say, yes, I'm thirsty. So Jesus says, are you thirsty? If anyone's thirsty. Secondly, Jesus says this, come to me. I'm amazed how many people don't come to Jesus. I'm amazed how many people come to meetings. I'm amazed how many people go to conferences. I'm amazed how many people go to the man or woman of power of the hour. I'm amazed how many people read the latest book. I'm amazed how many people watch the latest download. I'm amazed how many people go to the latest... Jesus, none of those things are bad, but they're not the thing. The thing is Jesus. He's the one who dispenses the Holy Spirit. He's the one who gives the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't matter who lays hands on you. You know, you might be, you might be feeling... Gainer looks, you know, she's like, she looks like a proper English lady. And you know, you know what proper English ladies are like. They're, they're proper and refined, and Gainer is proper and refined. And, you know, you're in the lineup. You know, in the lineup, and I know what you're like. You're not as spiritual as you look, but you're in the lineup, and you're like this. <laughs> Give me Gainer. Give me Gainer. <laughs> I, I'd like. Uh, uh, oh no, tea is coming. <laughs> you knew that was coming. <laughs> you shouldn't be so loud. Tea, tea, tea is coming towards me. Like if I look disinterested. She won't come to me. Oh, no, she's coming to me. She's, coming. she's even more determined to come to me now. She's coming to me now. Oh, no, she's laying her hands on me. Oh, oh, oh I'm receiving the Spirit. Do you know, it doesn't matter who comes to you. T, Gainer, even Graham. doesn't matter who comes to you. We're, we're just human hands. We're, we've got nothing in our hands. We've got nothing. Oh, I mean, I've got a chewing gum, but we've got nothing in our pockets. We've got nothing, in our, we've got nothing to give you. We're simply agents of him. We're part of his body. And when we put our hands on you, it's important we do put our hands on you because it's, it's symbolic of Christ putting his hands on you. And he said, put your hands on people. They'll receive the spirit. Why? Because we've got magic hands? No, because we're part of the body of Christ. And T and Gainer and Graham and you are as much a part of the body of Christ as I am. Don't, don't put leaders on pedestals. We're just waiters. You know, we're, just, we're just dispensers of the spirit. We just come and give the spirit away. Why? Because we're part of the body of Christ. If anyone's thirsty, come to So you fix your gaze on Jesus. When T or Graham or Gainer come and put their hands on you, just imagine, because it's true, Jesus is putting his hands on you through his body, because that's what, you know, you, 
you, if a body's going to do something, it kind of uses its hands. And Jesus' body, the body of Christ, is putting its hands on you. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. You're coming to Jesus. And then it says drink. And there's something about receiving. In a moment, Anne's going to come and give a little illustration of receiving. It's important that you receive. See, Luther, famous European reformer, Luther said, we receive with hands of faith. We say, thank you, Lord. I want you to imagine it's Christmas. Do you still have door-to-door deliverers here? Does the the Amazon delivery man come to the door? Or do you have to go to a place to pick it up? They still come to the door sometimes. But sometimes they come to the door, right? Some, so the Amazon, do you have Amazon here? What do you call it? Amazon, right? It's amazing, international language. We can speak Swedish, Amazon. You know, and you know that at Christmas, your rich Auntie Ethel, you know, we've all got a rich Auntie Ethel, haven't we? Rich Auntie Ethel, rich Auntie Ethel will give you the most amazing delivery from Amazon. It's that thing you've always wanted, you know, it could be that small because it's a piece of beautiful jewellery or something to wear. Or it could be that big because it's a great electronic item. Or it could be that big because it's something to be played. It could be whatever. But rich Auntie Ethel, she gets it right every Christmas. Every Christmas, it's the perfect present. And you're waiting there on Christmas Eve. And you know the Amazon delivery guy is at the door. He's pressing the button. He's hammering on. And you shout out the window, oh, don't worry, leave it out round by the bins. I'll pick it up in a couple of days or time. It won't be there in a couple of days or time if Sweden's anything like the UK. Well, perhaps Sweden's different. Everyone leaves. No, nobody touches anything. No, you say, you go to the door, you open the door, and you say, it's mine. It's not yours, it's mine. You take it. You, you, you don't say, oh, Mr. Amazon delivery person, I don't know if I'm worthy to receive from you today. Actually, I, I tell you, I sinned yesterday. Would you just pray for me first? Because I don't know if I'm worthy to receive it. No, you don't even think, are you worthy? It's about who's giving it to you, not your worth. It's about the worth of the giver. It's a gift for you. You receive it. And we, dear friends, we've got to receive things from God. And sometimes we don't even know what's ours to receive. We're so wealthy. We're so rich in Christ. We've got so much to receive from him. We need to take hold with hands of faith. That's what Jesus says here. Whoever believes in me, and drink. Receive it. Drinking. Ask Chloe. Drinking, you know. Is Chloe still in? Is she out? She's out. Alid, you know, you, you haven't got to teach the baby to drink. It's, got, it's a natural reflex. Harry just drinks naturally. And, but you don't say, no, we're going to have our drinking lessons today. <laughs> this is how you drink. No, it's, see, Jesus picks something that's so normal. Drink. It's not difficult. You don't go to drinking lessons. You, it's, it's a natural reflex. So drink, receive all the good things from God. I was talking to Anne about this, and she came up with a great illustration. Please don't fall asleep, because I'm going to tell you a story. And story time's often when, a time when kids fall asleep. So please listen carefully. It's a wonderful illustration of knowing what we have in Christ. In the early years of the 20th century a young man emigrated from Europe to the United States. Being of limited means, he had scraped and saved for quite some time in order to have the money for his steamship ticket. Finally, with ticket in hand, he packed his few belongings, including enough bread to eat over the week-long voyage. 
During the journey, he passed his days peacefully by walking the decks or resting in his cabin. Every now and then, he would pass by the ship's dining hall and savour the aromas of the rich and varied dishes served there. Sometimes he even stood and watched through the window as other passengers enjoyed their meals. Then, knowing he could never afford such a banquet, he would hurry to his cabin and parcel out some of his bread. On the final day of the trip, the young man stood on deck in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty, nibbling on the last of his bread as the ship approached the New York harbour. One of the ship's officers passed by and seeing the young man by the railing asked, Have you enjoyed your trip, sir? Yes, very much. I notice you're eating some old bread. Were the meals on board not to your liking? I don't understand. Did you find the dining room food objectionable? Oh, no. I've been eating this bread all week because I couldn't afford to eat in the dining room. I had only enough money to buy my ticket. With a surprised look on his face, the purser said, I am so sorry, sir. Didn't you realize the price of your ticket paid for everything? Not only your cabin, but all your meals as well. This young immigrant had all the resources of the ship available to him, but he did not know it. He felt he had to content himself with the meager food he had brought with him. His bread nourished him during the trip, but he could have enjoyed so much more. And I think we have to be careful that we just don't sit back and say, okay, that's it. I've been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's all. There's always more. And God's grace is sufficient to give us more and more and more. And that will never run out. That river will never run dry. And I think God just would just remind us again and again and again. We get satisfied and we need to be dissatisfied because we always need to know we have more. The ticket paid for everything. The price has been paid. When Jesus died on the cross, the price was paid for you, not just to receive forgiveness, and we don't take that for, for granted or lightly, not just to have a new clean life, but to have the power of the Spirit to live that life, and particularly to live that life as a witness to Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone's thirsty... Let him come to me and drink, receive, eat. And then he says something miraculous is going to happen. It happened in my life when I was 16. As you drink, a river is opened up from within you. You see, the river of Ezekiel wasn't about a physical temple. The river of Ezekiel was about this temple, As Graham rightly said this morning, we are now the temple. Don't you know you yourselves are the temple of God? That temple was just a picture of something more important and more blessing to come. This temple, the temple of God. We're in the temple now, and guess what? We're the mobile temple, like Graham said. We're the mobile tabernacle. We can pitch up at a school, a hall. We can pitch up at a theatre or a cinema. And do you know what? The temple's in action. The river flows. God comes. And do you know what's even more wonderful than that? 
It doesn't stop in the meeting. It doesn't stop when you leave the meeting. Actually, you take with you the very presence of God. It's like deep within. It's like when you drink, it's like, oh, it's when you drink, like it gets fuller and fuller and fuller and fuller and fuller. And so you, you get like to be overflowing in the spirit. And actually when you drink from within becomes this river of living, you all know what's going to happen. This river of living water. She's such a perfect English lady, how she's going to respond. But I won't do it too much. In fact, should I be a little Anglican and do a little sprinkle? This river, this river... I'll do it to David instead. This, now, there's an embarrassing spillage, David. I'm sorry. You remember that now. You remember that now. And I've spilt it in a very embarrassing place for him. You get, dear friends, listen, you get, you, Rob, Rob Horn said, he's not going to do the water thing again, is it? And Joe said, yes, that's why Rob's sitting at the back, isn't it, Rob? Because <laughs> I've done it over Rob a few times. The whole, per, the, the reason I do that is people remember it. It's the only thing Rob ever remembers that I've preached on, ever. <laughs> is that the one with the water? Yeah, oh, I remember that one. <laughs> Listen, you become a mobile... Nothing in my hand, right? You become a mobile receptacle, not of water that's going to spoil or stain, or, but of the blessing of God. So that when you bump into people at the restaurant tonight, when you bump into people tomorrow, or Monday at school, at college, in the office, at the school gate, wherever you go, whatever you do, what comes out of you is the blessing of God. It's the river of God. It's the life of the Spirit. And it comes out in kindness, in love, in mercy. And it will come out in the prophetic and healing and words of knowledge. And, and like Graham and others have been training and equipping us later, it come, you do it differently in the world than you do in the church. You don't say, thus saith the Lord, I have a word for you, oh my boss. <laughs> you know, you'll probably say it slightly differently. In fact, I hope you don't really say that in the church. But, you know, you'll say, does this mean something to you? I think I've been praying for you. I think this might be relevant or that. Where do you, how do you know that? Wow. Listen, dear friends, God is calling us to be the blessing of Gothenburg. He's calling us to be the blessing for Sweden. He's calling us to be the blessing for Norway, the blessing for Scandinavia. He's actually calling us to be the blessing for the nations. Really, he is. How is he going to do that? Through the river of life that's going to flow through us. If we had time, we'd look into Ezekiel. We won't today. It flowed into the Dead Sea and made even the saltiest place on planet Earth alive with fish. That speaks about evangelistic growth. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men, of people. Whenever the Bible talks about fish, it's actually a symbol of evangelism. I haven't got time to prove that to you, but I could. God is calling us for fruitfulness. He's calling us not... See, what's the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Is it just to give me a tingle in my tummy? Is it just to give me a good feeling and goosebumps and, oh, I feel happy today? Now, I'd rather you feel happy than sad. I'd rather you feel a good feeling than a bad feeling. But that's not the purpose that Jesus said that the Spirit... The purpose of the Spirit is evangelistic breakthrough. The purpose of the Spirit is a missional church. The purpose of the Spirit is for us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the purpose. And the reason that our churches are ineffective in the world is that we're not receiving the Spirit as much as he wants us to. And like Anne said, you can never exhaust. So don't be a pauper on the ship. Don't be one who presses in and looks in at the fine fare. It's yours by right. Come in and receive. When we pray for you in a moment, 
receive the Spirit. And we're not looking for any particular manifestation. The manifestation we're looking for is greater witness to Jesus, greater glory to him in the world, in the workplace. We're looking in the wrong place. We think, oh, did they, did they, did they receive, did they get something here? Did they fall? Did they laugh? Did they cry? Did they, what relevance is that? I mean, it's fine. The relevance is, are they powerful at work? Are they using the prophetic? Are they showing love and kindness and mercy and grace and love? Are they witnessing? Are they shining like a light in the darkness? Are they salt in a tasteless and, and, and corrupt society? That's what we are called to be, dear friends. The purpose of the Spirit is that the world might know that Jesus is alive. The Spirit comes to witness to the resurrection power and life of Christ. That's in you. The life of Christ in you. So it's okay with you that this team that have served you so brilliantly already, just continue for the next half an hour. We'll finish at five, don't worry. The next half an hour, just pray with you and for you. Is that okay with you? Could we do that? I wonder if the... It'd be just great to have a, a, a musician. Just one is fine, Alad. Because you, just, just you, just you, just you. <laughs> yeah, just one. And reason being, I want the rest of the musicians to be being prayed for. We'll pray for Alad later. So we don't have to be kind of. We don't. Ha- this isn't mood music. You know, we're not going to pump something into the atmosphere. It's not the lights go weird or there was something in the coffee. We're not into gimmicks. We're just very open about this. 